And it's a really complex algorithm to make sure that everybody's reaching their goals within the confines of these really convoluted and complex systems that every single state has decided to do differently. So I don't really know anybody that is doing this well on their own um, and has a good plan and isn't wasting years, years of their life. Like wasting money is one thing. Wasting a year is something that's completely unacceptable. Well, and I think you're exactly right, James. It's uh, it's unfortunate because I don't think there's anything more nerve wracking uh, in the game than burning points, right? Like that's there's a lot at stake. We don't get those years back, and yet I also I think it's equally unfortunate that we might as well be writing a donation check to some of these states because the the hunt that would make us so happy is behind us, and we never even look back at it. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Welcome to the show. Got Casey and Jordan from The Draw. How are you guys doing? Very good. Doing good, James. How are you doing? I'm awesome. You guys are down in New Mexico right now? Yes, yes sir. sir. What's that like? Amazing. Beautiful. <laughs> Sunny. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Today wasn't bad. Uh, I think uh, lows were mid-30s, but uh, by 9 o'clock, we were probably in the 40s, and last I looked, we were probably mid-50s. So, not bad. A little cool, I guess you could say. But, it's jacket weather down but, here. It's really... We had 80 degrees uh, within the last seven days in certain places, so it's not bad at all. Yeah, that's nothing to be mad about. <laughs> so what is the draw? Who are you guys? Sure. So uh, the, the draw, I mean, it's a, it's a question we struggle, you know, uh, even putting into words a little bit, James. But at the end of the day, just kind of uh, high level, we're an application service. We help people apply for hunts wherever there is an application that they need submitted. Um, at, at the core of our, our business model, that's what we're here for is to help guys, uh, whether it's a once in a lifetime hunt or whether they have a complex hunt plan uh, is what we call it with lots of states and lots of deadlines and lots of species, ensure that they're applied accurately and on time. And, uh, and then past that, we're as involved as much as guys would like us to be and be it uh, going with an outfitter or if they're planning a DIY trip, um, 
with just as much information as we can help them with uh, to either secure an outfitter and or go on a DIY trip uh, once they have a tag in their pocket. And as we all know, sometimes uh, we don't draw tags and we help with that as well. If guys still want to go hunting, um, we're again as involved as they would like us to be in really anything to do with planning hunting trips, wherever it may be. So let's break it down from the absolute ground level, which is to help folks understand that in order to hunt in a lot of places, you have to apply for a chance for that hunt. And in most states for most species, um, there are more applicants than there are tags available. So there's a system of lottery and it changes in each state. Um, some states give you uh, a higher chance of getting that tag if you've applied for multiple years. Other states are complete wild cards. Um, and each state has sort of tried to reinvent the wheel on how applications occur. And they've invented that new wheel any way but round. So trying to understand those application systems in every state is an absolutely overwhelming task. It can be overwhelming to understand the application system in your own state, especially if you're just getting into it. So the service that you guys provide is being able to understand that for any species, wherever people want to go. Is that yeah, you know, definitely. Fair roundup? I, and I even think maybe on a higher level, James, it, 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 it is how they interact with each other. You know, I think that um, it, it's unfortunate we see this happen a uh, number of times a year where even a, a, someone may give us a call. They've been applying for X number of years, sometimes an obscene number of years, 16, 18, 20 years, one state, one species. Elk is pretty common. You see it, but whether it's Utah or Arizona or, or Nevada, they've been they've been investing two decades into this finish line. And not only is it unfortunate that they don't have anything else once that culminates, but God help us if that goal didn't culminate while they were on the hunt and now they're starting over again. And I think part of the reason guys drift into some of the, that, the, you know, that process of just one, one application is this, again, the mystery of it all deters them from what if I, what if I ended up drawing more than one? What if I had too much on my plate? And so helping give context to what, how the, the, the systems in each of these states work uh, individually, but also in a, in a larger scale, so that now we can use the applications to create hunting opportunities as often as we want without risking having too much in one particular year, or on the flip side of it, having years where we don't have anything uh, to look forward to. And each state kind of has its pros and cons with that. But if you put them all together, we, we really can, especially when we're talking deer, elk, antelope, whitetails, coos deer, things like that. Um, it, we can hunt as often as we like. So are there two states that have identical systems and deadlines in the entire United States? Uh, no, no, none. That everyone... There is the two that are probably the, the closest uh, to each other is, well, that's not even true. I was going to say Montana and Nevada, but Montana has a few uh, little, I guess, asterisks next to how theirs are. But no, none of them are the same. Everybody, everybody to your point, has a different way that they interpreted what fair was back in, in the day. And 
and to include even some states like Oregon, where you're from, actually has multiple systems depending on the species, right? Your mountain goat and your sheep are are more of a random drawing like New Mexico or Idaho, and yet your your deer, elk, and your antelope, uh, personal opinion, might be the most broken in the whole country, right? <laughs> like it's it's unfortunate how uh, you know and. And you can, once you've studied it for a long time, you can definitely see where these guys who started this stuff, where their head was at. And based on the number of people that were applying and the tags that were available 20 to 30 years ago, when a lot of these systems got started, it looked great. And it looked like it was going to be very beneficial. But as more people have begun applying and the herds have, have dwindled and the maturity of the system has kind of manifested we find that most of them unfortunately it's hard to not say they're broken and so once we can identify that it's broken now we start back planning on okay if that's true if i can't get started and and invest in this for x amount of years and expect to draw if that's mathematically impossible for me to do that in say the very best units in the state in any given state, then what can I do? And I think we can come into it with a lot different context. And then depending on how aggressive we are, we have certain states that because of their system and because of, of different factors become our kind of go-to uh, where there's a lot more consistency. We know we're going to draw. And, and, and the system that be it in Colorado or Wyoming, Kansas, some of the South Dakota, allow us to forecast a lot better that we're for sure going to draw this tag if we apply for it. Oregon even has some levels of that as well that we're we're going to draw if we apply. And then yet maybe some of the others like in Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Montana, uh, may be more of just a long-term goal that we're not necessarily planning on hunting some of that stuff, but the quality is so high it lines up with our goals and the only way to, to draw is to apply. So we use them differently. And, and once we can un identify a guy's goals and what he's trying to, to accomplish, then from there we start back planning and, and using those systems to create the opportunities a lot faster and or depending on their goals, maybe at least with some clarity that, listen, this isn't about we're not going to get started in Arizona and go hunt the Arizona strip in five or 10 or 20 or 50 years. We're not going to do that. But if we want to hunt the Arizona strip, we have to apply for it. And maybe we'll beat that less than 1% chance of drawing. And if a guy chooses to do that, uh, knowing the context of it, then great. Like I, I do it. I can't help it. What if I draw? It's amazing. It'll <laughs> be, be the best day ever, but I'm not banking my year of deer hunting on that application. That's not what I'm submitting it for. I, I have a client um, who says that lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. So if you're playing lottery and it's just the odds, the odds are against you, like very much so against you. Same thing if you're buying a scratch ticket or going to a casino. Like, trust me, you're probably going to lose, but you might win. And that's what gets people excited and gets them to do it. But if you're playing the preference point game, you can reliably predict based on the data that's available in some states that you are going to draw that tag for that year. And it helps you plan out your year. I will say one thing though about, you mentioned something about herds dwindling. Um, we have more white-tailed deer probably than ever. We have more elk sure. right now than ever. We have 
fewer mule deer than we've had in the last 80 years. Um, right. So not necessarily true that herds are dwindling um, across the board, but the way that hunting has been managed in in most states, honestly, is geared towards hunting male animals. And some of the history behind that makes a lot of sense because as we're coming you know, out of the market hunting era in the 1800s and then coming into some of the Dust Bowl time period in the Great Depression when people were really dependent upon meat and they were hunting every single thing that they could, these populations really did crash. And elk hunting in Oregon, for example, was closed for 30 years in the early 1900s, completely closed. And these populations have really come back through a variety of conservation efforts. But when they started allowing hunting again, it was only for male animals. And the reason is because a male can breed multiple females. So if you were hunting males, you were allowing for the harvest of meat, you were allowing for some recreation, but you weren't necessarily having a negative impact on the population. We've gotten to the point in some areas where these elk populations or deer populations, for, ex- for example, um, have gotten really, really big, but the buck to doe or bull to cow ratios have really gotten offsided. And there's things that we need to look about, look at as hunters and really reevaluate why we're trying to hunt bucks and bulls in some areas where these populations have blown up. It's almost a whole nother subject. Um, and, and it really is, but for people who are trying to get these tags that are difficult to come by in systems that are difficult to understand with all kinds of different deadlines, like I ended up calling you guys because I want to be able to hunt in three or four states a year for four or five species a year. This is part of my job. And I need to also be planning deep into the future because it takes years worth of application in some states to draw specific tags. And not only that, but we, we call it a, we call it progression, a hunter, hunter progression, right? Because the idea of, you know, maybe your goals are slightly different because we've got some work involved and things like that. But as a general rule, hunters are eternally progressing, right? That's kind of what makes us who we are. And whether, whether that means that we're looking for an older age class of some specific species or whether we're looking for the next adventure, next ecosystem, next what something that, that really cranks us up again, I, I think that's something that we do really well as, as well as helping guys kind of, uh, you know, start expressing and, and understanding maybe some, some things about who they are and what makes them tick so that you can start addressing that progression. And so that, like, like I mentioned earlier with, with somebody who maybe puts in one state, one species eventually goes hunting and there they set and, and they, they culminated this goal. And yet now they're 20 years behind a point curve to go, or they believe that they're 20 years behind a point curve to have something of a resembling experience again. Like, and yet, if we address some of that earlier on, then we can start loading that pipeline with all sorts of different things, whether it's a progression of age class in certain species or maybe different weapons uh, that they that they would like to start hunting with, or or it's just a completely different species in a different ecosystem or, you know, whatever drives them. And, and that progression is a re- real thing. I mean, me, it goes in all sorts of directions. My personally, I've been, my dad was visionary. I, I'm only 38 years old. I've got over 20 points in a few places. 
and I'm, I probably have about a dozen or 14 in almost everywhere else. And I didn't know back then that I look at a lot of my points now, and I got an eight-year-old boy who's just getting started, just getting where he's about to go. And with some of the mentor programs and the way I can split points and things, my progression has taken me where I don't feel like I have a lot of boxes to check personally, but if I can you know, create opportunities for my kids with some of the investment that I've made sooner than later, like that's beyond exciting to me. And, and it's changed my goals completely. So the progression, you never know where it's going to take you, but it, it's real. It happens to everybody. Yeah, it's definitely something that the hunters talk about and something that Cody Rich and I have, have talked about quite a bit. It's like where you start out as a hunter and, and people have tried to box it into different categories. Like, like there's a, there's a plan and it's really not, it's, it's based on who you are. And I have some advice that I give people who are getting into hunting so that they can set themselves up for where they're probably going to end up in that progression. But what advice would you give to somebody who is calling you just getting started, but they know that they're committing to this? Like, Hey, I heard about hunting. This is something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, how should I get started? And then, you know, how should I be planning on where I want to be in the future? So th- this is something me and Casey have talked a-, a lot about, and I've, I've talked about it before. I think it's an, it's a great question, James. And here, the advice that I would give somebody who's just getting started probably boils down to like, as hunters, I think that there is a, uh, something built into us or for the most part that we want to, we want to work harder than other hunters, right? Like whether we're going to hike further or put on a heavier pack or, or we're going to do something to out hunt or, or out hustle our competition. And it's just kind of part of the process. I love guys like that. They can put on the heavy pack and they can hike the long miles. That's beautiful. Let them go, you know, take your llama and just go deep, like as deep as you can. Because that's where the animals are. Then you and your llama are going to find them. And if you didn't find them, you just weren't carrying enough weight in your pack. You didn't work hard enough. Well, so the, the, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's funny. I, I think that the, the, whether it's that or we're going to sit on a knob and we're going to glass harder and better, whatever it is, we want to do more than, than our, our, our peers when we're out there to, to find success. And what I would encourage guys that are looking at it is to avoid the unfortunate circumstances that happen a lot of times to guys who are in their same shoes that default to an over-the-counter elk hunt in in you know in be it Oregon or Colorado or Idaho or or one of these places if they don't do much research and the, and and if they would have just looked a little deeper and seen that so many of these places have extremely low success rates with high volumes of hunters and stuff. And, and our phone rings here all the time, James, on the end of those, whether it's the end of archery season in Colorado or second or third rifle season where guys are driving home and they thought they had it figured out and they thought they had done all of what they were supposed to do to find success in that stuff. And yet I, if it, was our first experience knowing what we all know would that be where you would want a guy to start and i think where where we can start outworking the other hunter is by implementing an investment strategy around applications by by default immediately we're going to hedge our bets in something a little better maybe it's not 
the 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 end all be all end of the rainbow but it's going to inherently with a little bit of coaching a little bit of direction be better as a first time experience than than just going to what you can go to just defaulting to something that was available so you bought it and you and you went and experience it and i think it would be i think it's super unfortunate when guys do that because for 99% of them, that's not a positive experience. Like there isn't a lot to be, to hang your hat on at the end of those things. And yet thousands of guys are doing that every year as kind of their initial entry to big game hunting, especially out West. And I'm not saying you got to go with a guide. I'm not saying you got to do all of those things. Is that going to increase your probability of success? And are you going to have somebody that can help teach you and 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 point you in the right direction and all that yes but if 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 it's a money thing if it's a goals thing whatever it is simply applying for something gets you in front of a whole lot of other guys and is and it's definitely going to hedge your bets on a better experience in the long run you know there there's something here that i've got to talk about because i had a conversation with an outfitter yesterday here in oregon and these folks guide in our best units in the state. So there's there's three units here that are undoubtedly better than the rest. And it takes about 20 years to draw one of these tags. The people that draw these tags that are able to go hunting with him tend to be really cheap. And they weren't taking, you know, a little bit of money every one of those 20 years and putting it into a fund to make sure that they were showing up with a decent rifle that had a decent scope on it and that they were able to give their guide a tip at the end of this hunt. Um, and there's an interesting mentality that goes with these people who have committed at a superficial level of application for a couple decades that almost lends them to not having as good of an experience as they might, if they would have you know, gone a little bit deeper into the way they were thinking about and investing in that future experience. So there's a real there's a real distinction between experience and opportunity and opportunity is something that you can make. It's something that sometimes comes along, but your, your experience, the quality of that experience that requires a little bit of thought and a little bit of planning. Yeah, I, I think that you're exactly right. And, and, and again, I'm going to kind of swing back around to the beginning of the conversation. If you know, whether it's a, a 20 plus point draw you know, on the, you know, Wanaha or something in Oregon, or whether you draw a unit 23 Arizona rifle tag uh, or a unit one, or, I mean, we could list 20, 20 examples of this. If that's like, that's like, if, if you've been hunting your back 40 for whitetails in the Midwest or the East coast your whole life, and now you need all of your elk hunting goals to culminate in this five or 10 day period because you waited 20 years for it, that's just not hunting. That's not realistic. That's not a, a real goal. It's like going from playing high school basketball to starting in the game seven of the NBA finals. Those are some of the very elite opportunities that exist. And how, if we've never done it before, are we truly prepared to take full advantage of the of this incredible opportunity if it's the first time we've ever done it? Like, is it Again, I, I say it all the time. And now, now as these these point systems have matured so much, I think that there is a disconnect, James, in in that the number of years that we wait to go hunting on a, on a tag, 
is a, a direct reflection of the experience or the quality of animal that we're going to harvest uh, when we when we finally draw that tag. And it's just not the case anymore. I mean, I know a, a pile of hunts, whether it's in Arizona or Utah or Colorado, that that they they take 15 plus years, whether it's for deer or elk, and yet even though it took so long, it doesn't mean there, there's giant animals all over the place and you just, it's your turn to go shoot one. The, the reality is, is most of the units in the Western United States that are managed for that higher age class, it's because they have lower populations of animals. So the state isn't allowed, it doesn't have the means to create an opportunity to go hunting for more people, therefore they manage for a higher age class. So the truth of the matter is, is the stuff that we're all familiar with, whether it's the Strip or the Kaibab or the Ponsagon or the Henrys or a lot of these different units, they suck. They're not fun places to go hunting. They're grinding, brutal experiences that are managed for a higher age class of animal. And so the middle of the road is a nice representation of the species, but you're not going to be on the cover of a magazine just because you waited 25 years to draw some tag. It's not a default to that. You, it's just your turn to go. So the more times that we're out there in the field, the more probable that anomaly is going to happen, that something special is going to happen. Trying to put something in a box for five or 10 days just because we waited 20 years for it to happen and saying that it's going to happen right then is so unrealistic and, and it's very unfortunate. When point systems got started, 20 and 30 years ago and when when we were growing up that's what guys did they just waited their turn and it was their turn to go to the best and and to your point some back then they were closing units for a few years if things were bad and the age class got up and it was like everybody got to kill big things but that's just not the world that we live in right now so if we want to kill some elite caliber of deer or elk or antelope or whatever my opinion of that is hunt as often as we can and let the cards fall where they are and as long as we put some logic into where we're hunting with higher success rates and and places that have a little better track record and we study the data and we do our research on it then one of those times the odds are something special is going to happen and i don't know if it's going to be the deer or the elk or I tell guys all the time, the best time to kill an elephant is when you're in Africa and they need one killed. Like it, it's, it's the same thing with a 200 inch deer or a 400 inch elk. The probability of, of, of shooting one of those, no matter where we're talking, is so slim. But if you go to places that have some decent track records for stuff like that, often it, it's, it's probably bound to happen eventually. But if yeah. we put it in one hunt in a 10-year period or a 20-year period, I, I see a lot of guys come home, just can't believe it didn't happen for them. And it's just not realistic. Yeah. You know, people can't see it, but I've got two bulls on the wall behind me right here. And they're a really interesting study because they have the same width, they have the same mass, and they have the same beam length. But one of them scores 300 on the dot and one of them scores 338. And the difference between these two bulls is that the 338 bull has about four inches per tine that's longer than the 300-inch bull. And that's it. But when people walk in, their first glance, they can't really tell that they're different sizes. But if you talk to somebody about a hunt, and they're like, yeah, I, I shot a 338-inch bull on this hunt, or they say, yeah, I shot a 300 bull on this hunt, then it sounds like the quality of their experience was wildly different. 
And that's not necessarily the case at all because it takes a tape measure to tell what the difference is between the outcome of this hunt versus that hunt. And I really encourage people to focus on the quality of their experience rather than on how many inches long a tine was on an animal because that's just aftermath. And if you get to hunt more often, then you're going to have a lot more experiences. And, um, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. So if you can go out and... Well, I also, I would also add to that too, James, that doing what we do, um, I, I do, we do get a lot of guys that are a lot closer to net new to this whole game. And maybe they've hunted their whole life, but especially when it comes to elk, right? Elk is such a high profile species right now, guy. Lots and lots of guys that want to go elk hunting. And we, and it's rare that we're on the phone with a guy that doesn't tell us when we, we ask questions similar to how we asked you in a 10 year period, how often you want to go hunting, what cali- you know, what kind of animals are we looking for? And the, the point system that has existed is allows guys like me and you and everybody else to have some context of what we're talking about when we see something in the field or you saw a picture or, or, or something like that. But I also think that the numbers get thrown around uh, a lot looser than they ought to. And Definitely. when I ask a guy, you know, how big a bull are you looking for? It's very common 350 right? 350 is a very, it's a very, very hot, yeah, Yeah. common (laughs) number that guys come in with and they say, I want a 350 class bull. And then, and you get to talk to them a little bit more. How many bulls have you killed? What are you, you know, this and that. And you're like, you know what? I think I've got a a great hunt for you, except it's not quite the caliber of bulls that I think you're looking for based on the number that you gave me. And you send them a link to a hunt right up on our website or whatever. And there's, 15 bulls in pictures and they're like oh oh, every one of them i would shoot any one of those bulls and there's not a bull over 320 in the pictures right and it's because they don't know and it's now no fault of their own i think social media and the industry has kind of forced their hand almost to this that's a default number that guys know means big so they and yet that isn't exactly what they're looking for and and to your point uh the that's still an anomaly they're putting 350 class bulls in magazines on because there's thousands of guys a year that are going elk hunting and very few that are killing a 350 plus bull and yet 99 percent of those guys if they walked up to a legitimate six by six that would have 300 inches of antler they're going to lose their mind and rightfully so it's big it's nice it's exciting and yeah, that is so much more realistic and and more obtainable and and we can we can do that more often at, at a lot lesser price point and all sorts of factors in it and and yet if we truly are only looking for that 350 400 inch bull we're going to miss out on some amazing experiences for a long long time waiting for some unicorn to fall out of the sky and land on us no i've often joked that you know, I should come up with flashcards of different sizes of elk for my clients and like hold it up for a second and be like, would you shoot that one? How about this one? And then I'll have the number written down on the back because people do have it in their mind that, you know, and it's a number. I used to guide on the Kaibab and uh, we walked into, we would walk, you know, Kaibab, famous 200 inch deer, big deer, everything. Jacob's Lake is this little gas station restaurant at the top of the mountain there. And, and you go in there and there's like 160 inch deer, just a straight typical four point 160 inches with nice eye guards. And we would 
we'd walk in there and be like, would you shoot that one? <laughs> and, and praying to God that they're like, oh, absolutely. And you're like, yes, <laughs> we're going to have a great week. And it's not because we're not going to go hunt 200 inch deer, but if he's truly happy with that and we're struggling and I see a buck like that or slightly bigger, I don't want to, I don't want to tell him not to shoot that when I know whether he does or not, that we're looking for a needle in a haystack right now. And yet that that's an exciting deer. Great. Well then let's capitalize on that one. If we see it. Sure. But you know, the point that I was getting to is as soon as you score an elk, as soon as you put a tape measure on a fish, then that number becomes the way that people quantify the experience. And if you don't do that, then they have to think about the intangibles of the experience and, and what made that hunt interesting. One of these bulls behind me, I shot at eight yards and I called him in by myself. That was an incredible experience. Does it matter which one it was? Absolutely not. Like, it was amazing. And there's all kinds of things that can make a hunt really amazing. It can be the terrain. It can be the time of year that that hunting season occurs. And you really need to be thinking about what is going to make the best experience for you now. What's going to make the best experience for you in 10 years and, and developing a plan based on the knowledge and the data that's available to help you attain that stuff. And like what Casey's interested in is going to be different from what you're interested in. It's going to be different from what I'm interested in. And it's a really complex algorithm to make sure that everybody's reaching their goals within the confines of these really convoluted and complex systems that every single state has decided to do differently. So I don't really know anybody that is doing this well on their own um, and has a good plan and isn't wasting years years of their life. Like wasting money is one thing. Wasting a year is something that's completely unacceptable. Well, and gee, I, I think you're exactly right, James. It's uh, it's unfortunate because I don't think there's anything more nerve wracking uh, in the game than burning points, right? Like that's, there's a lot at stake. We don't get those years back. And yet I also, I think it's equally unfortunate that we might as well be writing a donation check to some of these states because the, the hunt that would make us so happy is behind us. And we never even look back at it to see, and we could have done it three times uh, in the amount of times that we're waiting for something to happen that we don't even know yet. We don't, we don't have any context of it. Yep. What's the worst state? Is it Washington? Washington's got to be right up there at it's the top of Washington, the worst. Well, so uh, trophy quality for sheep, moose, goat, amazing, right? Really hard to, to look away from. Um, the deer, the elk, the antelope for a non-resident, uh, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around that process uh, up there simply for the fact that whether you draw something amazing or not, you're on the hook for a tag, right? Like there's just no way around it. Uh, you're going to pay the money for that tag. And so while there is some exceptional stuff up there, the probability of drawing versus the investment um, is really hard for me to wrap my, my mind around. I think California, other than if we're looking maybe at, uh, if you live cl close, maybe Oregon, Nevada, Arizona to California, there is some deer stuff that isn't so hard to draw and creates another opportunity. And, and some of it's really good, right? Whether it's blacktail hunting or, or, 
you know, desert mule deer hunting it, I wouldn't call that good, but you could shoot something really amazing out there, even though you might go 10 days without seeing an animal. So did everybody else. And then there sets a six-year-old deer out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so uh, the idea that California only allows one non-resident elk hunter, one non-resident antelope hunter, and up to, I think that this year it went up to two desert bighorn hunters, but there hasn't been a non-resident bighorn hunter that I'm aware of in a long, long time. And then a, a rather expensive hunting license uh, for a non-resident to get involved in. That one is probably even harder for me to wrap my mind around because some guy could draw a Roosevelt cow elk tag in Northern California and all the 5,000 Thule applicants just got out. Like you, there's no chance. It's not one per unit. It's not one per genre of species. It's one non-resident elk tag and everybody's out. The only exception to that rule would be for veterans. If you're, I believe in California, if you're uh, over a 40% disabled veteran, you, your cost of your hunting license goes from like $192 down to like $13. And so now don't ever plan on going there other than some deer stuff, but it's pretty cheap raffle ticket at a chance at a Thule. Or, you know, if you want to hunt the Northeast corner of California, I personally would argue that some of the very best Rocky Mountain elk hunting in the world is up in, up in California's Northeast corner. Um, yeah, there's some monster bulls in that Alturas area. There's also a grizzly in there this spring too. Really? Yeah. That's, that's wild. No, that's wild. It is. So, uh, cost versus value, California and Washington. I, I don't know which one is to your, to answer your question is worse, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around the investment versus, uh, the reward that, that you could potentially see in any of those States outside of like, say a specific black tail tag, probably more than anything. Casey, what's the best? Uh, the best is tough for me. I go back and forth in my head, mostly because I was the the guy that, that we kind of started this conversation out with the new guy, not necessarily to hunting, but branching out into other States and not talking to the right people not having a plan. Like everything we've kind of spoke about is having a plan. I didn't really have that. So Arizona scared me away because I knew I was behind a, a point creep. Uh, Colorado scared me just because of so many guys that I knew that walked over there, got the over-the-counter tag, went to Colorado, had the worst seven days of their life, never saw an elk. Um, Nevada looked cool. I moved some guys around that had a bunch of giant deer in their garage. But when I started looking into drawing Nevada, it was tough. So now I'm getting to... I would say like Wyoming for me is, is for a new guy, especially, or a guy that likes to hunt. Uh, numbers aren't so much in my head. I like to go hunting. And if I can get out there, get in the field, put me against nature, uh, me and my buddies have a good time, whatever. I can hunt there every year, every three years. And, and there's plenty of decent animals that are probably bigger than anything I have on the wall that, that I could run into any given day out there. So Wyoming is probably going to be at the top of my list, um, unless you're a resident in New Mexico and just because I'm here, might as well roll the dice. I'm not going to lose any points, gain any points. I have nothing to lose whatsoever, everything to gain. And I could end up in a unit that I see 40, 50 bulls from one little knob, <clears throat> or I could be in a unit where I spend four or five days out there and see one cow and then a 390 bull. You know, it's, it's 
it's and those spots are maybe two hours away that's the cool thing about new mexico you know you really don't ever know what you're going to get into but there's always opportunity here yeah those are those are great points and uh and you definitely hit on how that experience changes based on the tag that you're able to get so sure jordan do you have a a a clear favorite state no, I would probably echo Casey. I think uh, for for guys looking to even maybe just get started, um, the the availability of finish lines with the way their process starts is so much higher um, and lower lower number of points with lots of opportunity for deer, elk, and antelope, uh, even whitetail deer. There's just uh, with five or less points, really, you can hunt as much as half or more of of the state of Wyoming. So whether, you know, if we're going to focus on on let's say elk with with even their general tag that takes two or three years to draw right now, you could plan a high alpine above timberline type experience, horseback, backpack, whatever you're looking for. If you would look like something a lot less physical, you could be down in more of the center part of the state and the sagebrush and the rolling, you know, rim rock and some of that type of, of stuff with the smaller patches of cedar trees. If you're looking for a super physical experience, Wyoming's got it. If you're looking for a more mellow experience, Wyoming's got it. If you're looking for a private land experience, or a public land guided DIY deer, elk, and antelope with two or three years worth of investing in that state, you have so many ways that you can accomplish goals there that it's hard for me not to to default to that one as our as probably my favorite place. Um, for guys that want to be really aggressive uh, about going as often as they can, New Mexico, their point system and the fact that we set aside tags for guys who know they're going to go guided and and set aside tags who are for the normal a non-resident that wants to keep his options available. Um, not being behind a point curve, we say something in here all the time that equal odds are the best odds, no matter how low they are. The the idea that you're not behind a point curve is is the best that you can find nowadays. And so I, I like that. I'm a I'm a big fan of Kansas. We love we have a lot of good stuff going on in Kansas. Um, Colorado is an amazing state as well. Um, it's it's hard. It's impossible. It's not even just hard. It's impossible to get started in Colorado right now, and and end up at a finish line in what people uh, commonly refer to as the very best that that state has to offer, whether it's elk or deer. But that being said, there is. I, I think I I looked at it last year, and this number is going to come off the top of my head, but there was like. 220 something mule deer hunts in Colorado that were primarily public land that you could draw with one point or less 200 and something you throw a dart at Colorado and I promise you somebody killed a 200 inch deer in that county within the last year or two pick it pick a unit go learn it the availability of of being able to go uh in Colorado is pretty exciting, but I would still give the, the nod to Wyoming. It's, it's a, a, an amazing state. If you guys were going to design a application preference point system for a state, what would it look like? It would look like New Mexico's. The only thing that I would add to New Mexico's would be that uh, in New Mexico, if you study the regulations, they have uh, 
what they call a standard tag. And then they also have high quality and high demand uh, tags. Uh, uh, that is purely based on either a high demand is that uh, lots and lots of people are applying for it and it kind of tips the scale to the state um, or the high quality is that a certain percentage of guys on their harvest report said that it was a four or a five out of five star experience, right? It, if you were to draw one of those, I think that you it would be cool if they would implement a one-year waiting period where you were allowed to still put in for anything with a standard title to it, but you had to wait one year if you drew one of the high demand or high quality tags for deer or elk or antelope. And I don't think there is a way mathematically to design a point system that won't inevitably end up broken. Even with max points? Yeah, I, I don't think that they can, I don't think that there's a way that the state, if they're truly managing for what's best for the wildlife, can ever uh, uh, add enough product into the, into the equation to suffice the demand. So the, the max point will, will inevitably always continue to creep uh, at, to some level. So we could see some really exciting stories come out of the pipeline in the first 10 years of a point system, no, if we were just getting started, very similar to how lots of states started. But I, I don't think you could ever uh, keep up with the demand for the very best units in the state. And those units would have inevitably become a 0% chance at some level or, or a less than 1% chance for anyone who hasn't been lucky enough to draw once already. So I think that I think, and I think we're seeing like, so, we're kind of diving down a rabbit hole, James, but I call it draw theory. What's coming next, right? How are things going to look in 10 years, 20 years from now for guys like us that, that we don't have 200,000 acre ranches to go hunt ourselves on. And what I think it is, is we're seeing, you know, Oregon is probably one state that you're starting to see glimmers of where I think a lot of this stuff is going and, and equal odds are the way of the future and where you're seeing like, what do they call them in Oregon? Your special permits. Like you get one application a year for deer, one for elk, one for antelope that you, that you have an equal chance at drawing that you get to pick three units to apply for. And it's a different hunt code. That's just for those special permits. That essentially is a raffle, right? That's a state raffle. Yep. It's an $8 application at the core of it. It's a raffle. You're seeing, the states have already implemented some level of raffle. Utah does all of theirs at the Western Expo. At most others are either doing it in-house or they're uh, pushing it off onto some conservation organization to run the raffle for them. And I think the private, uh, the private sector has shown the states that there is a lot of value in each and every one of these hunts and each and every one of these species when you look at lots of different places out there selling raffle tickets to go hunting. These guys print money, they make lots of money at the idea that you, that this one animal, this one hunt, that I'll put 10 bucks in for that, I'll put five bucks in for that. I mean, the, the, the Western Expo in, United, in Utah makes like $1.4 million in four days off $5 raffle tickets, and you're only allowed to buy one per tag. So I think when guys our age inevitably become the decision makers in these state-run departments, and because of our age, we're, we've been behind the point curve 
indefinitely for our whole life and our hunting has been negatively affected by these broken systems then i gotta believe that you're going to start seeing more and more opportunities funneled into an equal odds type of of equation where for five bucks you can put in this and and i could we could go two hours on that subject of what I think's coming and how it's going to look in 10 to 20 years, but at just 10,000 foot view, I think you're going to start seeing more and more states recognizing that their system is broken because we're about to have a whole generation of guys die with points that it never happened for them because there isn't enough supply to suffice the demand. Yeah. No, it's, it's extremely difficult. And you look at guys who have saved up, you know, 25 points or whatever, meaning that they've been applying for the same tag for 25 years. And some guys are just buying those points and waiting until they can retire so they can really commit to this one hunt that they dreamed about while they sat in this job that they hated for a lifetime. And as soon as all those guys get out and they start cashing in those points, then suddenly they reset the bar and those points get farther and farther out. My dad has been applying for this antelope tag forever and it is increasing at a rate of one point per year. And he's just dead set that like, this is the unit that he wants to draw. And it's like, look, mathematically, you're not going to get there ever, but here's these other units that you can draw this year. And it has the same quality of antelope. Want to do that? Like, nope, I want to (laughs) stick to my plan. My dad's a different beast. I'm asking you <laughs> folks that are out there listening to think about the other opportunities and uh, and reach out to these guys at the draw as a resource to understand what those opportunities are and start taking your hunting seriously and making a plan that, that goes deep into the future because, um, you know, you'll have better and better experiences the longer you play this game. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you talk to somebody that just has a little bit of knowledge outside of your comfort zone, I mean, whether you're talking about hunting or anything, um, you just, you've got to visit with somebody that's maybe done it before and then talk to a couple guys that did it different and then come up with something, you know, that you can kind of see some ideology behind it. But I stayed way too long just sitting here saying, oh, never going to catch up to this. Uh, Don't want to strike out here. And then meanwhile, I'll go hunt some of the, you know, most boring hunts in New Mexico and be successful just because I gave it a shot. And yeah, sure. I don't always kill big stuff. And, you know, my buddies will always give me a hard time that I rarely shoot big stuff, but I go out and have a great time and I'm hunting and I'm not sitting there just looking at a calendar that's eight years from now, hoping that then I'll be within 10 years of drawing a tag. I'm I'm actually getting out there and and enjoying it. Yeah. No, you've got to, you've got to play this game in order to get the opportunities. It's just the way the laws work. I would add to that too, James, if I could, uh, you know, the one thing that we I've seen over the years that it is a mistake and that I would caution guys for, and, and if they give us a call, you know, we'll, we'll help them in the, in the same way. And it, the, the, I think that this it's hunting, it's exciting. It, there's a lot of uh, emotion wrapped up into it. And I think, you know, like me personally, I'm utterly addicted to this game. Like it's like heroin to me. I play it as hard as anybody I've ever met. I put in for recklessly for everything. Like I can't, I put in for stuff most people have never even heard of. And, and yet that, that is so far from what a guy should be doing. I think the best plan 
getting started is that we identify some, a short-term goal, one or two, you know, and we, and we, it's a lot better for that. This can get overwhelming. It can get expensive, right? You, the state fees alone are adding up all the time. We're seeing increases all the time. What I would encourage guys to do is, you know, take a look at two or three short-term goals instead of eyeing that one long-term goal that that may or may not ever happen, get dip your toe in the water, put a couple applications in, whether it's with us or whether it's it's on your own. Find some some states that have short-term goals associated with them that have higher success rates and go full circle in this process. Go put in an application, build a point or two, go on, draw that tag, go on that hunt. And if you start to see the value in applying for this stuff and you 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 start enjoying the game of it, because it truly is a game, uh, once you start getting past the short-term goals, then so be it. Then you then you know now you're one of the brotherhood, right? Like we we're reckless abandon. We apply for everything and hope to God some unicorn tag falls out. But I also have a lot of backup plans that I know I'm going to draw every year. And those are a great place for guys who are just getting started with this stuff to operate. Don't, don't swing for the fence on your first time. Go through the whole process of it and see how it all works. And if you, if, if it, if it's fun, if you enjoy it, then great double down and, and get a bigger hunt plan and, and expand and address your progression a little bit more and some of that type of stuff. But I, I, I see guys that have come in and they want to sign up for a couple thousand dollars worth of stuff. And, and within a year or two, it's like, how, how do you see value? It's hard to see the investment versus the value that we're getting if we're being that crazy about it, right? Because we don't, we still don't even have any idea what we're spending money on, or most guys don't. It's still a mystery. But if we can just ease in, dip our toe in the water, and start seeing the value of the investment and having it create the opportunities, and you and you love it, and you want to do more, great. Most of the stuff in the short-term goal states, like I said, whether it's Colorado or Kansas or Wyoming or Montana. Or, or we've got a, a you know an ace in the hole in New Mexico or Idaho. Great, we we've got really confined short-term goals that we're going to address right then. We're going to go on quite a few hunts, and if you get to where you want to look at the long-term goal stuff or the unicorn tags, great. But I would encourage you guys not to do that uh, right off the bat. You're you're already behind the point curve. So be it. Like, go. Let's get you started on stuff that actually has legitimate finish lines around it. And let's go hunting. Let's not just donate money to a state and throw a handful of darts at the wall every year and hope one of them sticks. Yep. So going back to back to that quote from my client, lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. If you, like me, are bad at math, then you should probably get a hold of Jordan and Casey <laughs> <laughs> because they're nerds for hire. So if... Uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and they want to talk about what this looks like to put together a hunt strategy, how do they do it? So uh, you can get a hold of us a few different ways. Uh, definitely give us a call uh, right to the office. It's 575-222-1234. Um, that's one way. Um, you can email us uh, at info at the draw.com or you can just jump on the website as well. You'll see there's two buttons, one that says find a hunt. And the other one says apply for hunts. And if you click that apply for hunts, it's going to ask you for your name and your phone number and birth date and a few 
few different pieces of information and just submit that. And one of uh, likely Casey uh, will definitely be giving you a call immediately. Uh, that's he's uh, he's definitely a better pick than me nowadays because at least you you have he has time for everybody and I can't seem to catch up uh, for for nothing on on everything. So. Uh, you can reach out to us on our, our social media. We're on Facebook, The Draw, or Instagram at We Are The Draw. Um, we, we really monitor all of that stuff. So, however, is easiest for a guy or convenient, um, it's no different to us. We'll, we'll make sure we connect and, and start going over what their goals are. You can also find a link to their website in this podcast description. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for your time. We're going to do this again. And next time we're going to get into states and species and uh, talk about what kind of, maybe we'll just talk about what my plan looks like going forward um, since you guys are developing that for me. And uh, we'll do that sometime in the next couple months. But for now, I really appreciate your guys' time and I really appreciate the help that, that you've given me so far. And I'm feeling a lot more optimistic about my hunting future and the tags that, that I'm looking forward to getting and making sure that I'm going to have these opportunities year in and year out. No, it's, it's a, it's a super exciting. We're very humbled to be here for sure. James means a lot to us. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much and we'll catch you next time. Thank you, James. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>